This is the Savvy Philanthropist Podcast. My name's Kirk. We are a financial planning podcast for people who want to do philanthropy well. Whether you're a donor trying to do some good in the world, or you're a development officer trying to connect resources with the people who need them, this podcast is all about how to navigate our U.S. legal and financial system in order to make the greatest philanthropic impact you can. This is episode 25, Enforcing Charitable Agreements. Last week, I had the privilege of presenting at the annual conference of the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners. On the off chance that you've never heard of that august organization, it's a national group of committed professionals who do the sort of philanthropic planning that we talk about on this podcast. My presentation was on the enforcement of charitable gift agreements. Basically, donors often make gifts subject to particular conditions. You can imagine things like scholarship criteria, things like that. My talk was about who exactly has the right to enforce those restrictions. The answer isn't entirely clear in the law, but there have been some interesting court cases on the topic in the last few years. So I reviewed those cases and then offered a few thoughts about how best to address those concerns in charitable agreements. Best of all, there was some great interaction from the attendees and I got some good feedback. This topic isn't exactly in our podcast lineup right now, but I decided that it would be a neat idea to post the presentation here in case you might find it interesting. The audio isn't perfect in places, especially when people in the crowd are speaking, so please make allowances for that. And of course, I want to thank the fine folks at the NACGP for inviting me to speak and allowing me to present the recording here. If you or a group you know is looking for a speaker on philanthropic law or giving, I'm always looking for more opportunities to speak about my favorite topics. Feel free to reach out. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy the presentation. Good morning, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Kirk Ross. But first, and incredibly briefly, my name is Christian McTarnigan. I'm an attorney at Chisholm, Chisholm & Kilpatrick in their bequest management practice. If you all don't have an in-house bequest team dealing with your mature bequests, we have an outsourcing option for you. But enough about me. Kirk Ross is an experienced estate planner, planning attorney, philanthropic advisor, and educational speaker. He began his career in private legal practice in law firms and wealth management. In 2011, he moved into planned giving full-time at two large universities. Earlier this year, he took a new position as a senior trust advisor with Fifth Third Private Bank, where he helps high net worth clients with their philanthropic and financial planning. He's an adjunct lecturer at the University of Toledo College of Law and a regular speaker for professional groups and staff trainings. He is the creator of the host of the Savvy Philanthropist podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping people do philanthropy well. In his free time, and we're talking a little bit about this earlier, he likes to spend as much time as he can outdoors with his wife and three daughters camping, biking, or otherwise playing in the dirt. Please join me in welcoming Kirk Ross. Thanks a lot. All right, I'm not much of a stand-behind-the-podium guy, so I hope we can uh, get started. Thank you for coming today, first of all. I know Friday mornings are the times when some of our minds are heading out the door, but I appreciate you making the time. The thing I want to talk to, uh, about today is uh, a challenge that came up in my own work, and I realized I didn't know enough about it. I wanted to dig into it, and uh, then I thought, you know, this is something maybe that can help all of us. So a number of years ago, I was invited to work with a donor who wanted to make a ex- very, very large gift to uh, the university where I was working. Well, they'd already been through a couple years of working on his gift agreement, he was a very cautious man. Um, I was invited to sit down and be part of that conversation, and among other things, 
he had one of the most extraordinary enforcement paragraphs I put in there. I think, you know, his mom, his sister, his dog, his best friend's dog's mom, everybody had the right to enforce this agreement, you know, until the end of time or something like that. And I have to admit, in my, one of my less admirable moments, I thought, wait a minute, I know the rule. Only attorney general, attorneys general can enforce this. I'm going to let him put in whatever he wants, and if it ever comes up, we'll just deny they have standing. And I realized maybe that doesn't reflect on me really fantastically as a fundraiser and professional. I said, wait a minute, I need to understand this better. And so what I did is I started digging into what the state of the law is about uh, how I could have a conversation with that donor about what the law says they can and can't do. And so I wanted to share that today. We're going to go through a couple steps. The first thing is to talk about um, what the law is right now, such as it is. But more importantly, I want to move from there to a conversation about how do we address the concerns that our donors have, right? Because the, the, the questions they have are important, uh, especially when donors are investing some really significant assets in some good in the world they're trying to accomplish. We don't just say, look, quit asking questions, give us the money, we'll let you know, right? Maybe that's not sufficient, but how do we address those in a useful way? So, the traditional rule. Like I said a minute ago, what's the traditional rule? Who has the sort of unquestioned right to enforce charitable agreements? Attorney General of every state, right? That's sort of going back to the old version of things, 150 years of law that says once a donor makes a gift, that donor has released any ownership claim in that property, therefore the, uh, that donor is simply in the same position as any other member of the public, right? Well, who represents uh, the public in legal matters? The Attorney General. So there's really never been any question that the Attorney General has the right to enforce those things, right? The question has always been, who else might? Well, the question is, what's the problem with the Attorney General being the only party or the party that enforces charitable agreements? Any ideas? What, what's the, why is that maybe not a perfect outcome? <laughs> Amazingly, the attorney general of a state has other things to do. Fair enough, number one, so they're not going to have a lot of attention. And he, what else? Well, if you work at a university or you work in a hospital, how many individual gift agreements do you have? A lot. How many charities are in your state? Okay, so approximately one billion gift agreements are subject to enforcement by the attorney general. Okay, the odds of that being an effective enforcement mechanism if we need one, certainly there are some questions around that. Okay? So in the last couple of decades, the law has been evolving on this question, right? Because at the end of the day, the donor is just a member of the public, right? Except not really. We all know who has an interest in whether or not our institutions do the things that we said we were going to do. So the law has been uh, changing a little bit. The question is, into what? So what I'm going to do in the next little bit is go through some of the... Uh, recent cases or, or situations that have, been that have really dug into this question to see what they say and see if that can inform uh, our work. Because the answer is, and this is the beautiful thing about a topic like this, I get to end of the session by saying, huh, that's a really good question. We're not sure, good luck, right? Okay. So that way I can't be held accountable for really anything. But I do think some of the case law suggests that uh, the law is aware that the donor uh, Actually, has a, maybe a little bit of an interest. So the first case where this sort of came up in a real robust way was a case of Smithers versus St. Luke's Hospital in New York. Got resolved in 2001, if you ever want to look it up. Uh, my paper has some uh, citations in there. Essentially, Mr. Smithers, during his life in the 70s and 80s, gave a very significant amount of money to the hospital in order to establish uh, an alcoholism treatment program. Now, 
you may have seen this sometime in your life, but when somebody gives a whole bunch of money, that donor often says, hmm, I think I'm going to stay involved. Okay? So the donor in this case was very, very involved. There was a pretty detailed uh, gift agreement, a set of expectations uh, that were made very clear, very explicit over the course of time. But importantly, all of the gifts were made during the donor's life. Okay? So these are just intervivalist gifts, piece of cake. Mr. Smithers then passes away. Uh, well, what happens? The hospital says, hmm, some changing circumstances. We think we can employ uh, or deploy some of these assets in a different way. We're going to, among other things, sell the building Mr. Smithers gave us, uh, which was supposed to be an integral part of the treatment program and some other things. But the hospital was pretty clear, you know, we need to do some different things. So in this case, what happens? Mrs. Smithers notifies the attorney general. The attorney general does, in fact, step in. So, so far, so good. We're on our typical path and reaches a settlement with the hospital about here's what you are going to do, here's what you're not going to do. We recognize changing circumstances, but we want to uh, honor donor intent. We'll meet in the middle a little bit. So at first blush, we think, oh, this is great. We got a, a piece of cake, typical settlement. But then what happens? Mrs. Smithers says, hold on, that's not what we meant. Okay. Now, importantly, in this case, according to the case law, all of the gifts came from Mrs. or Mr. Smithers. This would probably be a very different case if Mrs. Smithers was, in fact, a co-donor of that. That's not the situation in the facts of this case, right? Mrs. Smithers came to open the, her husband's probate estate to say the estate of the donor is going to enforce this agreement, even after the attorney general has already reached a settlement. So in a traditional view of this, this should have been a slam dunk case, right? This, this is a done deal. There's no standing. There's no nothing. It's a, it was given during life. Attorney General's already looked at it. What's the problem? Well, donor intent was perceived as the problem. In this particular case, the New York court, uh, appellate court, actually granted standing to the estate. I'm going to stop the discussion of that case there because standing is the question. The court determined that the donor's estate through the act, you know, uh, executrix as his wife, had standing to go beyond the settlement and uh, enforce the uh, terms of the agreement. So that's case number one, the Smithers case in 2001. Well, it turns out that uh, this, situ this case or this uh, set of facts was not unknown to the rest of the legal world, right? The Uniform Trust Code was promulgated originally in 2000. Um, Addressing this issue, the Uniform Trust Code explicitly granted stat, uh, standing to the settlor of a charitable trust. We'll skip over what exactly counts as a charitable trust and donors giving, but the language, and I quote, in the Uniform Trust Code was the settlor, among others, has uh, standing to enforce an agreement. Well, that's super helpful. The settlor, among others. What does that mean? Well, after Smithers, states started enacting versions of the Uniform Trust Code, okay? Section 405A, among others. So every state, or I think 40-something states have enacted a version of the Uniform Trust Code, if memory serves, and they all have different versions, but essentially there's a version of 405A in all of those. So what we've really moved to is a world where, statutorily, at least the settlor has standing to enforce an agreement, but so do some other indeterminate people, right? That's not super helpful. So, unsurprisingly, there has been additional uh, uh, litigation. The, uh, the, the Legasset case is really kind of interesting. It was a, an action in Michigan. Uh, you may have heard there's a university there, uh, the University of Michigan, right? 
So uh, Dr. Bellamy, one of their professors, uh, included an estate gift through his revocable trust to the university upon his passing. The previously negotiated and signed gift agreement said that, that endowment will fund a professorship in a certain type of Arabic literature. No problem, okay? Well, Dr. Bellamy passes away. His friend, Dr. Legasic, the successor trustee of his revocable trust, consequently makes the gift, funds the endowment. Michigan then goes and hires its first Bellamy chair. What do you think happened? It chooses a faculty member who did not have expertise in the previously agreed field. In this particular case, it was simply a different era of uh, Middle Eastern uh, or uh, Muslim literature. That is far beyond my expertise, but the clear answer was, we're not doing the thing we said we are, we're doing something close. Well, interestingly, Dr. Legasic said, you know, my friend wasn't kidding. That was his life's work in that field that was really important to him, okay? So Dr. Bellamy filed suit. And in this case, as successor trustee of Dr. Bellamy's trust, he was granted standing to enforce that gift agreement, okay? So what are the key facts? Let's flip back to uh, Smithers for a minute. Intervivalist gifts, the probate estate had standing. In this case, this was actually a planned gift and sort of the fiduciary who facilitated the gift retained standing in order to enforce that, okay? Lots of open questions there about, you know, what if Michigan had changed its position 20 years later? How long does that trust open? Question for another day. But the successor trustee does in fact have standing. This is a really interesting case for purposes of uh, standing. Anybody familiar with the University of Missouri and Hillsdale's little spat, right? Well, this is a pretty interesting case. Uh, a, a Mr. Hibbs was a very successful businessman who had attended the University of Missouri. During the course of his life, he made a number of very significant gifts. Actually, I think they were, just a minute. Yeah, during his life. Made gifts to the University of Missouri on the understanding that they would uh, create a number of professorships, endowed professorships. Well, what the challenge here was is they were required to be professorships for faculty members who espouse an Austrian brand of economics. A nice fuzzy term that in the literature you know, is useful, but maybe in a legal document less so. Well, that's a, for what it's worth, that Austrian style economics is very free market oriented. Uh, that's a particular branch of, a, of modern economics. Well, for a while that worked, but it turns out Missouri felt like that was not consistent with the faculty members they wanted to hire, okay? Well, the gift agreement with Mr. Hibbs said, University of Missouri, the money's yours if you do this. If, however, you do not do that, that endowment then transfers to Hillsdale College, probably because Hillsdale College is known for espousing a particular free market style of economics, among other things, right? So what can you guess happened when Missouri tries to uh, change the faculty members who receive the professorship, what does Hillsdale do? Comes knocking on the door. Says, hmm, we have a problem. Well, Hillsdale then files suit, okay? Interestingly, all of the actual litigation in this case had to do with venue. How often do you see that fight, right? It was which county in Missouri is the right place to file suit. Now, the reason that venue mattered was because according to uh, Missouri law, suits about charitable trusts are filed a certain county, 
uh, if memory serves, uh, suits about probate estates are filed somewhere else, and so determining which county was the right place to file was gonna tell you a lot about which law the court was going to apply, right? So a silly fight about venue, not even standing per se, uh, but venue uh, sort of resolved the case. Well, interestingly, in this situation, you know what was never questioned? Standing. It was assumed that Hillsdale had that right because it was written into the agreement, okay? So a gift over recipient, or whatever you wanna call it, uh, was just assumed to have the right to enforce the gift. Now in this case, once that, stand, or that venue question was resolved, the parties then reached a settlement because then they kind of knew the legal landscape they were working in. So we don't have a, actually have a resolution about what the legal impact of that sort of gift over provision is, but for standing purposes, uh, it was pretty clear. Now one near and dear to my heart, this is the last one we're gonna talk about. Uh, this is the Moritz case at the, uh, the Ohio State University College of Law. Um, in this case, Mr. Moritz was an alumnus of OSU's law school. Had been very successful, uh, made a bunch of money, turned around and gifted $30 million during his life uh, to his alma mater. And in fact, you'll see his name on the law school if you're ever there. The uh, gift agreement uh, specified a number of scholarships, a number of professorships, off we go. Interestingly, Mr. Moritz had been on the Ohio State Foundation board for a number of years, so it's presumably pretty familiar with how that worked. Well, he then unexpectedly passed away in a car accident a number of years ago, and uh, then over a couple of years, his family kind of kept an eye on uh, the endowment. As they started reviewing the financial uh, information in about 2016, their perception was that the endowment had not been managed or administered consistent with the agreement their father had signed with them. Among other things, the uh, gift agreement did not include reference to management fees that OSU had been uh, levying against all of its funds, including this one. Um, the investment performance had not been as expected, so the endowment was down. Uh, there were some pretty credible suggestions that some of the scholars, there weren't as many scholarships awarded as there should have been, that sort of thing, okay? So the family felt like they had some very valid complaints about the way that gift had been administered. So what happens, Mr. Moritz, the son, Michael Moritz, uh, files suit in probate court to open his father, to reopen his father's estate, which had, his probate estate had done a few things, to reopen the estate with the specific intent, and this is in the filings, it says, for the purpose of enforcing this agreement with Ohio State. Sorry, the Ohio State. Um, and in a really interesting set of outcomes, the court denied the, uh, the suit, simply saying, even if we let you open the suit, or open the probate estate, the gifts were made during life, the estate had nothing to do with it. So you, the estate, couldn't do anything anyway, and since there's nothing the estate can do, there's nothing statutorily that would allow us to reopen the estate and name you as the executor. So that suit just went nowhere. Interestingly, in that case, guess who filed a brief on behalf of the Ohio State College of Law? The Ohio Attorney General actually came in on the law school side. Now, I think that's more a, a case of defending its position as the sole enforcer of agreements rather than the merits of the case, but uh, certainly the Attorney General was not going to pursue a case against Ohio State. But in this case, the donor's estate was explicitly denied standing to even make the argument. Now, does anybody catch anything about the Moritz case versus one of the other cases? 
Smithers, it's literally the exact opposite outcome. Okay? Now, we all know that state law is different in different states, so that could have been the reasoning. I, I've, I've read the Moritz case pretty carefully, and, the, and the, uh, the, the court was very clear that Ohio law does not provide any power to the estate to do the thing you want to do, therefore there's no reason to open the estate. Not as familiar with New York law, it may have a different uh, set of rules. But what it does tell us is we can't say, oh, executors have the right to enforce whatever. Alternatively, what would have happened if the gift had been made through uh, Mr. Morris's estate? Well, now it's a planned gift. Now does the uh, estate have something to do? Well, maybe Legasic suggests that, yeah, maybe that's the outcome, okay? But importantly, at the end of the day, what's the outcome in Moritz? Nothing, right? Ohio State's just going to keep doing what it's doing. Now, it is acknowledged trying to be more transparent about what it's doing with those gifts, trying to address those things. In what is maybe the kind of yuckiest outcome, the Moritz family has essentially made it a personal crusade to point out what they perceive as errors and flaws over time about the way the Ohio State University Foundation administers its funds. They're very public in the Columbus area. It's really quite unfortunate. But Ohio State has kept Mr. Moritz's name on the law school. He was a very loyal alum. They wanted to do that. So this is going to be something to watch over time. And what I think is the most important part of that is it's not going to be resolved in the courts, right? That's the interesting thing. Yes, sir? So the question about, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes, absolutely. There is a microphone if anybody would. And I'll repeat the question uh, for everybody. Exactly right. The question is, were a lot of these issues addressed in the gift public filings? You can track it down. And the short answer, I, and I certainly, none of us do the job as well as we can. At the brevity, lots of room for us all to learn from each other. In this particular case, I was surprised at the brevity of the gift agreement. So it, didn't, it simply stated, we need this many professorships funded this way, this many scholarships funded this way, with no provision for what if things don't work out the way we, and it really speaks to happening. Okay, so that stuff was not addressed. Now, the interesting fact on that point about fees in particular, which nation, meaning, was he aware of fees? Well, presumably, right? And so his family said there was no discussion of that. Why? There's no reason he would know that. State maybe could have navigated that and drafted that in a different way. So you're. And I'm not aware that the courts ever addressed. Those, yes. But the UCC also states that, you know, it depends on state law, and so the state law, it, it, it refers to state law. So. Let me finish that and come right back to that. You're exactly right. So the first question is they didn't address it in the materials I was reviewing because we were only getting to standing, right? Maybe later on, like in the Smithson's case, a MIFIC came. I don't think it did because it wasn't really a question of how are we treating the UTC. You know, and really, after about 2000, blah, 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 depending on what year states adopted different versions of the UTC, different states are going to review or, or interpret what settler among others means. Who are the others? Okay? So 
I don't think Smith, I don't think New York had the uh, a version of a UTC in 2000. Smithers ought to have the right to enforce the agreement because the hospital is just not doing what it said it would. Okay, a sort of a generic justice kind of decision versus you know Ohio or the Morris case is very clearly embedded in statutory language. So I certainly agree that different states are going to interpret their own law in different ways. That's and that's exactly where we are. Okay. So what I want to pause here and talk about is the fact that we've got these cases that have all sorts of facts in them. They're very fact-specific, right? Would Legasic have been different if it were a probate case versus a trustee case? Um, if Mr. Moritz had made the gift through his estate versus during his lifetime, would that have changed the outcome? All of those questions are open, right? Because guess what charities and institutions don't want? Lawsuits. Right? So the question here is, and this is what really got me thinking, what are the conversations we can have with our donors about why this matters? Right? If you're going to start a company, right, and let's just say how many of your donors did exactly that, right, or were successful in the business world, or were in a very robust economic place, and they were used to enforcement agreements and said, let's hash it out, and I'm gonna, if you don't do the thing our contract says, I have the right to get my money back or something like that, right? That's not crazy talk from a successful uh, donor in a lot of cases. So how do we have the conversation with them about why maybe that doesn't map over uh, just the same? So I'm gonna throw this question out to everybody. What's, what are the potential negatives or the things that would concern us as nonprofits to having robust enforcement mechanisms written in? Let me throw that out. What, what are some of the reasons we might not say, let's have the Hillsdale situation or my potential donor's situation about 52 different people have the right to enforce? Why, is that, why might not that be good? Circumstances change, we have the right to alter the terms. Well, who gets to determine that? We want that flexibility. No, 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 I, I thought you were asking. No, no, I was, uh, other, other concerns. So that, oh, back there, yes. analogy I hadn't really thought about a prenuptial agreement because is it important to have that conversation about sometimes the world things change right that's not an awesome conversation most of the time right um, so that changing bust enforcement provision that says if you don't do this 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 and this then these bad things happen okay well some version I mean, that's really oh. oh no worries Thanks thank you about. see that is an extraordinarily does that create other duties for the institution to other people? And I think that is a very under-considered problem in that regard, okay? So you've got it, Hillsdale College saying, we have a right to that money if you don't do the right thing. Well, how are they gonna know if Missouri's doing the right thing? Hillsdale's gonna say, I have an idea, why don't you send us an annual report, and if you don't, we're gonna have a problem, okay? Oh, your annual report isn't sufficient enough. Oh, wait a minute, we don't think, question of litigation 
in, this, in not only the institutional scenario, but if you to create reporting requirements to other people. Now, take that another step further. What was Hillsdale's obligation? You know, I'm sure, I would imagine the donor thought, this is just sort of my backup plan. I got a plan B, but it won't really impact anything. Well, wait a minute. Now, Hillsdale, which has its own fiduciary obligation to its own charitable status and its own donor says, hmm, there's a big bucket of money over there that we're supposed to keep an eye on. All of their incentives are to somehow pursue that money for the benefit of their institution. Well, is that what the donor meant? Maybe, but probably not, right? So I think that question of very likely litigation is only going to grow over time because we know we all live in a more litigious world than maybe we used to, right? So creating the spaces where litigation is almost a certainty, I think, in some of those cases, maybe that's not what the donor wanted, right? Donor uh, intended. And the, <laughs> the one that... Uh, I think we can all relate to the most is, what about the one who wants to review every student's uh, transcript or wants to vet the patients who get the financial aid, all that kind of stuff, right? And that goes to that point of reporting. If the settlor has an unending op or opportunity to enforce, what sort of requirements, reporting requirements are consistent with that power, okay? So policy concerns from the institution side saying, hmm, maybe there are some questions here. On the other hand, does the donor have some legitimate concerns? What are the donors thinking? What are the concerns that they have that are not crazy? We'll leave the crazy ones aside for a minute. Well, the institutions always do what they said they were gonna do. We have court cases showing that they didn't, right? Does the settlor have, or, or the donor, have a unique interest in the execution of the agreement that she signed? Well, yeah, okay. So there are the days when we as fundraisers wanna say, look, we did the work, we got the agreement, you gave us the money, now just leave me alone so we can go do this stuff, okay? We have to remind ourselves that these donors have, in many cases, made full of their own values, and at the end, lived a life full of their own experiences, full of their own values, or in a way that is significant to me. And then they trusted us to do that. Right? So as much as we want, sometimes want to make this a legal thing, we have to constantly remind ourselves that these are value-driven, profound, appropriate legal documentation. But uh, we've got to bear that in mind that these are important. What are the ways we can address those legitimate concerns that donors have in a way that navigates that enforcement world in a useful, appropriate way, okay? So I wanna throw this out to everybody for a minute. What are some of the steps you think we as institutions can take that help us not crash into that enforcement wall at the back end? They want the, the institution wants the money, they wanna do what they wanna do, the right. donor wants them to do later and decides that you know, Ohio State's not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it seems to me that one way, and hindsight is always 2020, is that they could have been in the process of decisions, and, and maybe, and maybe they could have had conversations with Mr. Moritz about, you know, what his family, the donors' advisors, and just to kind of get a better sense of so how they brave um, if you know something, you know, seems amiss to them. So.
broader conversations that take place around the time of the gift and during the donor's incomes. So I agree 100%, okay. From the legal perspective, I think that is exactly correct, okay. One of the most important things I think we can do, especially when we're talking about very significant gifts, is have that upfront conversation about exactly this topic, okay. Because you can imagine a lot of cases where 100 years later, Institution X changes how it uses the money, grandkids of donors show up and forget it, right? That, we're not, that grandkid doesn't have standing, okay? But you can imagine in the Morris case, you know, Michael Morris is probably talking to his dad over the dinner table about how great this gift is and what they want to do and all this kind of stuff, right? So we, he, we could imagine dad saying, yes, I want my son and my wife to have enforcement powers, okay, for... X years, but not my grandkids or my nephew or my business partner organization, to grant the donor some explicit enforcement options. But at the same time, that draws a line that then excludes the other things, right? The agreement could have said, my estate, probate estate has, subject to court supervision, has the right to enforce the agreement. Or uh, my wife during her life has the right to enforce the agreement, she does not after that. There are a lot of different ways of doing that. Okay, all of which have pros and cons. So I agree with you 100%. One of the ways to be proactive is to have this conversation, not hide, like I admit I had about a 30-second thought of it, hiding behind the attorney general, saying, oh, we'll just, meh. Okay, so that, that's the legal answer, and I agree with that 100%. Yes, sir. Thank you. And just tell me to shut up, because I feel like I'm talking a lot. No, no. <laughs> I love good conversation. Um, I work at a community foundation, mm-hmm. um, so you know we often are ad- administering. F- we act, we're acting as the philanthropic fiduciary for several donors, and oftentimes they're supporting multiple institutions, or they might just be, um, you know, their favorite causes, and we're the picker. But I'm, you know, I'm just I'm thinking about a recent agreement that I just completed. Um, where the donors were really interested in ensuring that they're 20 years to other institutions. And so, you know, number one, first of all, really understanding the team currently. You know, who knows? This is an estate gift. It's a $10 million gift. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty significant amount of money. Um, And... So I really wanted to be clear to, to understand and manage the donor's expectations about what it is that we could or could not do. And then the second thing was, you know, using wiggle room language, which again is a bit that. Right. So that way, if, you know, that for some bizarre reason, the AG cut our best efforts. So I, I agree again with that 100%. The question of managing expectations. And I think this is something as gift officers we often forget. Our, it's okay to say, you know what? We really can't do that thing. That's so many unknowns in doing it that we have to create a whole separate thing in order to make that happen. And I'll just talk about another example. When I was in LA, where it was you know, a significant, it was like a $25 million estate, amounts of the grants to be significant. You know, and just kind of, again, like the donors originally came up with this like really complex reporting requirement where folks in community oversee. And I remember talking to our person or, or folks in community realistic, particularly given the dollar amounts that are going to be going up, we're really reasonable. Um, that's not always the case, <laughs> but 
Um, you know, we're about what kind of reporting we would require from a grantee. Right. So that way it was right sized to the grant amounts and it was something that wouldn't be overly burdensome for our staff. So I, I think that sounds like you handled it in a really terrific way. Donors, you know, going back to our point a minute ago, in their mind and in their heart, this is huge. And huge is associated with all those great reporting requirements and I want to be around to have that feeling all the time. Well, depending on the institution, maybe what is their really big life-changing gift is not associated with a great deal of staff time, right? Depending on your institution, right? So how to have that conversation in an honest, forthright way focused on actually accomplishing the goals that the donor is helping the institution achieve, you can have a conversation about right-sizing those requirements. You know, let me just sort of flip it around a little bit. How many people or how many institutions have decided not to apply for a grant because the reporting requirements weren't worth the money? Yeah, everybody, right? Switch that around. Maybe, how do, how do we create phraseology with a donor to say, hmm, we don't say, well, if your gift were 10 times as big, I'll give you whatever report you want, right? Versus, you know what? We don't think we can realistically provide that expectation, and so we're gonna help you find a better way to do that. So managing those expectations, I think, is exactly right, okay? Yes, ma'am. work for the University of Michigan. Um, Bellamy could have been solved if we had done a better job of crafting what it was that Professor Bellamy actually intended. I, I, and again, talking with the donor very carefully. And yeah. for those of you, I thank you for mentioning that. And if I say anything not quite right, please nope. uh, stop me. But if I recall correctly, Dr. Bellamy had a specialty in a very specific area of Islamic literature. And he wanted there to be a professor in that field forever. Okay, anybody see a challenge there for the institution, right? Oh, we need a, you know, endowed professorship in seventh century Islamic literature till the end of time? That's not likely. So was there room for the university in that conversation to say, as long as this, or... gave the chair to was an expert a chair in Islamic literature, but like a couple hundred years later, Dr. Bellamy, okay? So, if I'm wrong, that specific time, does he take what I think was a $2 million gift and go somewhere else? Well, m maybe, right? And we hate, as gift officers, that's the worst, right? But who wants litigation, right? So, in a world, and this is, I don't know, this is something that matters to me. In a world with rising expectations, more metrics, and every institution saying, if you just raise 10% more money, right, in that case, the donor was not, did not see the outcome he wanted. The institution ended up in litigation because they really wanted to close that gift, and boy, do I get that, right? I understand that. But how do we as professionals say, our job is to do the gifts right? so that the good in the world we're trying to accomplish. Okay? So uh, that's exactly right. Other thoughts about how to be proactive. Okay, so uh, that's exactly right. Other thoughts about how to be, we often don't recognize the value in. Your donors,
who are thinking about making substantial gifts subject to gift agreements who say, I want my lawyer to be able to keep an eye on you forever. Okay, well, you demonstrate the challenges with that, but then say, let me introduce you to a couple of donors or their kids, or let me show you. And a couple of cases where we made a mistake, here's how we fixed it, or here's how we addressed it. Here's how we acknowledged our wrongdoing and tried to make it right. Okay, I think there are times when we forget the value of that to say, we're only in this chair, we're only gift planners, we're only donors, we're only working in the nonprofit world because we actually want these good things to happen for other people. So as long as you think I'm here to rob you of your $2 million so we can go buy blah, 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 whatever, we're not ready to talk about a gift yet because we haven't established that you, that you recognize that we're committed to doing what we're gonna do, okay? So I think finding a way to talk about your own personal integrity and your institution's integrity by demonstrating that we have always tried to do our best to do what we say we're gonna do, I think that helps address the legitimate concerns uh, charities have before you get to the question of, when is your lawyer filing suit three days after you pass away, okay? So I hope the theme that you're hearing from me is that engaging the donors in a thoughtful way that acknowledges their concerns, but also recognizes the unique risks to the good they're trying to do through that allows us to achieve the things that they're trying to accomplish. Because at the end of the day, we're just shoveling the money through, right? Getting it where it needs to go. So if we can take litigation out of that, if we can take the legal stuff out of it, okay, not take the legal stuff out, um, make it as fluid as possible, we're gonna help those donors achieve the good for the people that need it. Conversation. Um, I will throw out, I do have a pie. I like talking about this stuff all the time. I do hope to uh, put this out as an episode. Uh, if you're so inclined, feel free to check it out if you think that might be useful. I also uh, craft it with the idea that maybe donors could listen to it and get an idea of what we do a little better, right? It goes through different types of gifts and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, I will stop it there. I'll be here for plenty of time. I'm gonna end a little early because uh, as much as I can talk forever, that gets boring fast. Uh, so thank you for your time, everybody. I really appreciate it. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you know other people who might find this podcast worthwhile, please share it on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling particularly generous, a rating or review for the show on whatever podcast service you use would really help to get the word out about the show. You can find The Savvy Philanthropist on the internet at thesavvyphilanthropist.net. You can find me on LinkedIn at the link below in the show notes. And you can follow me on Twitter where I am at RossPlan. Lastly, if you have any ideas, suggestions, or helpful insights, feel free to email me at thesavvyphilanthropist at gmail.com. That's it for episode 25. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get to that new series I mentioned, all about making gifts of real estate. Until then, remember, do well, then do good, but always be savvy.